to episode 31 of my Lateral Conversations podcast. My name is Thomas Mark. My guest today is Dr. Jordan Peterson. Dr. Peterson is professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He is book author of Maps of Meaning and entered the public sphere when he took a stand against, well, postmodernism, identity politics, the use of gender pronouns and political correctness. As many people out there, I think that he is fighting a necessary fight, but uh, apart from that, I also think that his Maps of Meaning lectures on YouTube are quite fantastic, so you should check these out. So this podcast revolves around the relationship I think, between his stand against the nature of political correctness and his maps of meaning, at least in so far as what we could cover in 70 minutes or so. If I should title this episode, I would say it's about the dusk of postmodernism. So, without further ado, here's Dr. Jordan Peterson. Please enjoy. Dr. Peterson, thank you very much for joining me in this podcast. It's a pleasure. Um, you know, identity politics and gender and the whole issues about gender pronouns, there's a heated debate on that here in Europe, in Germany, as well as I noted in Canada and the United States. So you, you posted some videos about um, your refusal to use this gender pronouns and about the problems of political correctness. So can you, in short, elaborate a little bit on this? Yeah, well, I made videos back in September because there was a move afoot in Canada, which is still progressing forward, mm. to make the use of these pronouns derived from postmodern philosophy, like Z and Zer and, and so on, essentially mandatory if if someone requests them um, under and the failure to use them let's say is punishable by a variety of rather uh, punitive measures um, including potentially jail time if the the charges work their way thoroughly through the system but at minimum the possibility for being brought before the human rights commissions in Canada, which have become social justice tribunals, essentially brought before the human rights tribunal, not the not the human rights commission. Mm. And these are, I would say, kangaroo courts that have been set out outside the standard traditional legal system to enforce these more radical neo-Marxist policies that are becoming extraordinarily prevalent in the legislative system. So I made some videos about that and also about the University of Toronto and other uh, large institutions attempts to essentially diagnose their workers using the implicit association test, which is hypothetically a test of um, unconscious racial bias and then to re-educate them out of that unconscious racial bias. So and those videos caused a lot of commotion to say the least. So that was back in September and I've been involved in a, I suppose, philosophical battle that has political implications ever since. Mm. So the, these are the, the political aspects, but from a more psychological or sociological perspective, what are the, the main problems the, of the obligation to use those gender Well, it, it, 
there's never been legislation in Canada. Our legal code is basically derived from English common law, although we also we have a province that uses the French civil code, and so there's a bit of a conflict between the legal traditions in Canada. But basically, it's English common law derived, and there's never been legislation in Canada that compels the use of certain language. Mm. I mean, there there are restrictions on free speech, like you can't like you can't um, incite someone to commit a crime, for example, and you can't make a direct threat to someone's safety or or life. But there's never been legislation that actually demands use of a certain kind of language. Mm. And that's a border. See, I don't really care so much about the gender pronoun issue. It, it just happened to be the, what would you call it, the uh, the issue that where this sort of thing came to a point. But I don't believe that the government should be in the business of compelling speech on any issue. I think it's an unbelievably dangerous line to cross. And I especially object to crossing it in service of a postmodernist ideology about the socio the socioculture determination of such things as as so-called gender identity. I very much object to having that viewpoint instantiated in the law. So in the relevant legislation, um, not only are is there is there uh, moves afoot to make certain kinds of speech mandatory, but there's a a view of human identity that's also been instantiated into the legislation and the surrounding policy. And that that view is extraordinarily philosophically paradoxical and and poorly formulated. Mm. Um, at best, it insists that sexual or sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, and sexual proclivity vary independently which they most certainly do not, even though there are exceptions. Um, and that's being taught as dogma in schools, in, in secondary schools now. It's That idea is invading the secondary schools because of a, a conscious push on the part of the postmodern ideologues who are, who are pushing this sort of thing. Mm. Um, and they've actually even weakened that to some degree because you can make a coherent case that gender identity, uh, which is a term a phrase I'm not very fond of, but we'll use it for the time being. You can make a case that gender identity has sociocultural, uh, that sociocultural phenomena play a role in determining gender identity and gender expression, of course, because that's merely fashion. Mm. But, but the legislation, the way it stands now, the wording of the surrounding policies insists, A, that there's no biological determination of such things whatsoever. B, that it is actually more dependent on personal choice and whim even than on sociocultural determination. So they weren't even able to make a coherent case for pure sociocultural determination. They had to water that down so that such things as gender identity have now become something that you can transform by mere fiat of your own accord at any place or time for any reason. And that Everyone is required to go along with that. Yeah, but where does the notion come that we don't have a biological base for our gender? Where yeah, well, that's, well, apparently, you know, the people who are pushing this, I had a debate with a, with a lecturer at the University of Toronto named Nicholas Matt on Canadian published TV, public TV, and he stated forthrightly that there's no biological differences between men and women and said that that was the scientific consensus of research conducted over the last four decades. And of course, nothing could be farther from the truth than that. There are innumerable 
biological differences between men and women, even mm. though there is substantial overlap, obviously, given that we're the same species. Mm. So, but you, there's no admitting that because to admit for any sort of bio, it's not even biological determination, right? It's not the right way to think about it. It's biological influence. And I mean, if you put enough cultural pressure on a biological organism, you can transform it in all sorts of different ways, but you're still transforming it within a set of, you might describe as universal human attributes. Mm. I mean, a good example of that, a good, a good analogy is language. Human beings have a innate proclivity for language, whatever that happens to be, mm. whatever that innate proclivity is, we don't really understand it. And then of course, the form that language takes, the specific form, depends on the sociocultural surround. But the fact that language is created socioculturally doesn't mean that the proclivity for language doesn't have biological roots. And mm. the idea that, I mean, the idea that there's no biological influence on human behavior is pretty much the same idea as there's human beings have no body, which is, of course, a completely absurd proposition. And we have two eyes. That's biologically determined. You know, we 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 are hungry. We're thirsty. We're we have sexual desires. We have defensive aggression. There's all sorts of inbuilt systems, way low in the brain that determine and or that shape our behavior. So, it's a crazy idea. And yes, I'm sorry, no? but I, I just had a thought. Do you think there is a relation between this denial of uh, the realm of the uh, physical body? of those gender theories on the one side and on the other side this crazy aggressiveness which uh, those people exhibit like I don't know if you have seen this video of the German University in Magdeburg where there's supposed to be a gender conference and the guy was supposed to be uh, having a lecture and there were like these radical leftist students who behaved more or less like Nazis and I, I, I just remember the, the idea of Wilhelm Reich who observed this relation between suppression of sexuality and of body in, in a way and, mm -hmm. and this aggressiveness. So do you see there also a relationship or is that something? Well, I, I think there's, uh, that's an interesting question. I think there's two things happening. One is that if the, if the facts don't support your ideology, then all you have left is to enforce it is force or legal fiat. And that's what's happening in Canada certainly is The reason the postmodernists have taken the legal route um, is because they failed on the scientific front. Uh, they failed dreadfully on the scientific front. Mm. I mean, one of the best examples of that is that there's a very good literature now on personality differences between men and women, personality differences and differences in intrinsic interest. And so large scale studies have been carried out using psychometrically valid personality uh, um, personality instruments, and they've looked cross-culturally at, at temperamental and personality differences between men and women. And the social constructionist hypothesis would basically be that as a culture moves more towards egalitarian social policies, that the personality and interest differences between men and women would decrease. But that's actually the opposite of what hap what's happened. And so there are large-scale population studies showing that the biggest personality differences between men and women in the world are manifested in the Scandinavian countries. Mm. And they've been increasing as they, their policies have become more egalitarian. And the reason for that is that as you flatten out the sociocultural differences between men and women, the genetic differences maximize. 
because that's all that's left. The yes, only source yes, of variability that's left is biological. Hmm. And so there's reason for them to use increasing, uh, let's call it political pressure to drive home their point because they can't do it any other way. And then there's another factor that I think is very interesting. Um, this is more speculative, but I think it's relevant. Um, one, we've been looking at political correctness as a political ideology, trying to understand its its psychometric structure, which means we've been examining how the set of ideas, whether the set of ideas loosely identified as politically correct, actually cohere in a in a regular manner. Because if they don't, then there's no such thing as a set of beliefs that you could describe as politically correct. Mm. So it's an empirical question. We analyzed a set of about 400 questions that were derived from media reports of political correctness and so forth, trying to establish the large network of potential relationships. And we found that two tight sets of political ideas clumped together. So there's actually two forms of political correctness. One we described as political correct liberalism and the other as politically correct authoritarianism. But both of them are linked by a trait called agreeableness. Okay. Agreeable people are compassionate and polite, and women are more agreeable than men. And it looks like it's fundamentally the dimension of maternal behavior. Now, the interesting thing about maternal behavior is that if you're operating on the maternal circuit, let's Mm. say, you have a strong proclivity to treat the world like it's composed of predators and and vulnerable infants. Yeah. as far as we can tell, that accounts for the demonization of the opposition among the politically correct, is that any group that's tagged with the, with the, with the vulnerable uh, descriptor, so any group hypothetically that, that has been oppressed or that is suffering, is instantly cast into the role of innocent, infantile victim who can mm. do no harm. And then anyone who is outside of that protected group is treated as a predator. Okay. And and I think that people basically use the snake detection and eradication circuitry that, that's a deeply evolved part of our psyche mm-hmm. to as the underlying metaphor for the predator. And then the logical response to the presence of a predator is to shut to well, to eliminate it essentially, however that might be necessary. And so you see that manifesting itself. It's one of the things that manifests itself in these political displays. The, the idea that the the opposition should just be shut down, terminated, never talked to, mm. just eliminated. Wow. And obviously, that's an unbelievably dangerous oversimplification. Um, that's now, I mean, that the opposition should just be shut down because the opposition actually has something to say that might be relevant. Mm. Partly, um, all groups are no, all all groups that are not thriving are not innocent victims. That's the first part and everyone who's outside of that group is not automatically a predatory demon. So mm-hmm. I think it's comical because the very people that deny the biological effect the effects of biological determination are acting it out in their political action. So it's so yes, it's but black but this, exactly. So this is one of those performative contradictions of postmodernism, right. I guess. So, but, but before we come to this, you know, you posted this video where you analyzed a little bit the, the game structure of the PC game, you know, and it reminded me a little bit about this old theory by Eric Byrne. I don't know if you know him, games people play. So yep. he, he had this basic structure. You have a proposal, for example, 
uh, you identify yourself as a victim. This is what you were char characterizing. And then there's a trick, and you can um, accuse and threat everybody who doesn't behave in the way you want them to. So, and yes. he, he, so what, was it an inspiration for, for this thinking oh, of yours? Well, I don't, I don't think, it's hard to say because I read Byrne a long, long time ago. It's probably 30 years or something like that now. So you never know what influences your thinking, but it wasn't a conscious influence. Hmm. Um, it, I, I've been thinking more in terms of political beliefs, especially oversimplified ones, as as compression algorithms. That's that's a way of thinking about it because the world is a place that's so complex that it's really beyond human understanding. Mm. And so what what we do as a consequence of that is use simplifying heuristics to clump diverse things into homogeneous groups so that we can treat them as if they're one thing. And that's very useful frequently, like it's useful to have a category of dog, for example, which is, you can think about that as a low resolution representation that averages the difference across all dogs into a single entity. Now, you know, the category dog is a good category unless you face a mean dog, in which case the category dog needs to be differentiated into nice dogs and mean dogs. Mm. And you don't want to differentiate your categories more than is necessary for functional utility. But but you need, do need to differentiate them enough so that you're not obscuring relevant differences. Now, that's a very tricky thing because what's relevant and what isn't is very, very difficult to, to calculate. Sure. Mm -hmm. But th these political beliefs are hyper-simplifying um, algorithms that can be applied not only to not only to opinion, that's the thing that's interesting, is that the simplifying algorithms actually structure perception itself. And so, and that's been exaggerated to some degree, I think, by the rise of the internet. But if you see the world through your temperament, say, and, and that hasn't been modified by strenuous logical thought, then you're going to, your, your, your unconscious neural mechanisms are automatically going to highlight certain phenomena and suppress others, make them, truly make them invisible. Mm. And they, it has to happen that way because you need to make most of the world invisible mm. because otherwise you can't operate. But there's a danger in that, in that now and then the things that you make invisible are the, cru the crucial phenomena. Now, that's often why people make mistakes. But the problem is, is that it's happening at the level of perception. Mm. And so people... Imagine that you could present yourself with an unbiased field of facts. You can't, but you could just imagine that that was possible. But then when you view the field of facts, your temperament highlights some and filters out others. And so, and then you might derive your conclusions based on those facts and feel that it's merely a consequence of logical operators, but it's not. Hmm. It's, it's the old problem, essentially, that Kant identified when he, when he structured his critique of pure reason, is that the facts don't array themselves in an unbiased manner because you bring a perceptual structure to your field of, of apprehension. Hmm. And that struck that a priori structure is what, how the world manifests itself to you. Hmm. Now you can change that, but it's very, it's hard. It takes effort and training and thought and all of those things. Hmm. So that's very interesting because it leads us to, to another topic, uh, namely postmodernism that, 
I mean, there's no broad consensus about what postmodernism or postmodernity is, but you can argue in a way that this thinking, which is in a way derived from Piaget and a lot of other guys, that this is like a, um, a discovery of postmodernism. You know, like, okay, we, we are constructing in this way, by our temperament, our own subjective reality. That doesn't mean our, the objective reality, but our way, how we perceive it. Sure. Yeah. So. Well, it, hmm? No, go ahead. So, no, and my question was because you are in a way critical about postmodernism. And, but, but in my understanding, you know, postmodernism is a, is, a, is a worldview which emerged out of the horrors, so to speak, from modernity. You know, like feminism and constructivism and all the good things that emerged in that time span of the last hundred years, more or less. So, but then something happened, and Habermas spoke about those performative contradictions, but now what is happening, that those contradictions in, invade our life in a way which had we have never known before. You know, like constructivism leads to fake news, and, and feminism is deconstructing itself. What, what is your take on that? Uh, in well, well, first of all, I mean, I understand what the postmodernists, the postmodernists got caught up in a, in a very complicated technical problem. And the technical problem is essentially that there's a very large number of ways to category, categorize any set of entities, even a small set of entities. So, for example, if you wanted to categorize a set of six books, there's, there's a virtually unlimited number of ways you could do it. You could do it by height, thickness, width date of publication, uh, alphabetically by author, alphabetically by name, cate uh, um, what topic, number of E's, number of A's, length of the average word, length of the average sentence, length of the average paragraph, etc. You can multiply the number of categorical schemes that you could apply to that set of entities by all the properties of the entities. Mm -hmm. and there's endless numbers of properties of the entities, especially when you also consider them as elements of a larger set, right? So, so there's the problem, and that's back to the problem of the infinite complexity of the world. Now, to deal with that, you have to impose an interpretive structure. And so the postmodernists ended up thinking, well, if you have to impose an interpretive structure, who's to say which interpretive structure is correct? There's an endless number of them. Mm. Well, that's a big problem. I mean, it's also a problem that's bedeviled artificial intelligence. So for a long time, the artificial intelligence researchers assumed that perception was a relatively straightforward matter and that the problem that needed to be solved with regards to building, like, say, intelligent robots that could act autonomously was to determine how to act upon the entities that were perceived. But as they started to build machines that could perceive, they discovered, and this was back in the early 60s, that perception was such a complicated problem that it actually looked impossible. Mm. So what's happened, the way that's been solved essentially is that robots, artificial intelligence entities have, have, to, have had to become embodied and instantiated with specific purposes so that the problem of perception could be solved as a consequence of goal-directed action. So, because what happens is, is that it's goal-directed action that sets the pragmatic frame for, for perception. Perception is a tool used to attain certain goals. It's not a way of 
observing, dispassionately observing um, an infinite set of variables. And so the postmodern has stumbled across that problem. It's, oh my God, there's an infinite set of interpretations. Well, then, for example, how can we be sure that any interpretation of a text is canonically correct? Mm. And if we can't be sure that we're interpreting a text in any canonically correct manner, how can we be sure that we're interpreting the world in a canonically correct manner? Mm. And the answer to that is, well, that's, that's complicated, but part of the answer is you can't be sure. But then you can't say, well, just because interpretation is extraordinarily complex, all interpretations are therefore equal, which is the next postmodernist move, or that all interpretations are um, arbitrary, or that all interpretations necessarily only serve political ends. And that's where the postmodernists see. What happened with postmodernism is that if you take the philosophy to the logical conclusion, you can't act. Mm. Okay, but you can't not act, because then you die. So that's not an option. And so what's happened is that postmodernism has been remained nested inside the neo-Marxism out of which it partially emerged. And with the postmodernists default to Marxist presuppositions, value structures, whenever they need to act. Mm. And they just they just cover that over with a wave of the hand. It's like, well, yeah, everything's an interpretation except the idea that there are oppressed and oppressors. That's true. That's Mm. a canonical truth. And now we can use that to guide our action. And we're not going to brook any um, criticism of that idea because, well, then we would be paralyzed into inaction. So, And the fact that that's logically contradictory, we'll just wash that away with the hand-waving movement that claims, well, logic is a tool of the oppressor anyways. Mm. So it's an appallingly contradictory philosophy, but it doesn't matter because the postmodernists do claim that logic they claim this forthrightly, Derrida in particular, that logic is part of phallogocentrism and that it's just the way that the patriarchal structure justifies its claims to power. Mm. So the postmodern has said that they dispensed with interpretation, but they kept, they kept a few basic axioms. This is also true of Foucault. It's like, well, everything's interpretation um, except power. Power's real. Mm. And and that's derived directly from the underlying Marxism. It's mm. an appallingly incoherent philosophy, and it's extraordinarily dangerous. But these people also build themselves little airtight enclaves to keep to keep inconvenient um, inconvenient contradictions from themselves or other people hidden, and so then they act out their contradictions in the world. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so you. You talked a lot about Piaget in, in your lectures and, yep. and the stages of development. So, and, and I guess he stopped with the formal operational level of adult development. So, but I was wondering how much your worldview is informed by more differentiated stages models. Because there are like uh, models who say, okay, there's, there's like a pluralistic or even more post-conventional or there are more post-conventional stages up to being construct aware how we how we deal with narratives and, and all that stuff how much are you influenced by those well I'll, I'll talk about Piaget a little bit um, so Piaget believed that children basically entered the world with sets of reflexes at hand mm. and that and that the reflexes were the were the precursors to a bootstrapping operation but so the 
that that brought the child into being as a fully fledged entity. And so, in some sense, he viewed the world as a as a as a field of information that the child could interact with and 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 absorb the information, mm. model it, imitate it, both both in an embodied sense and also then in a conceptual sense. Embodiment first, and then and then conceptualization. So for Piaget, the fundamental embodiment of a cup would be this, right? Because that's how you grip a cup. And so mm. a cup is something to grip. And then once you've got the grip cup relationship, then you can conceptualize the grip relationship and you can start talking about grip as an abstraction. Okay. But it's basically embodied. Okay, so now there's there's a problem with that. And, and the problem is that Piaget didn't give enough credence to the underlying psychophysiological structure of the brain in addition to the reflexes. He thought about the reflexes as a set of, say, motor tendencies that were built in, or even sensory motor tendencies. Mm. But we know a lot more about the underlying biological substructure of the brain than we did when Piaget was formulating his theories. And we know now that there are sets of hypothalamic circuits, essentially, but other subcortical circuits that we share with animals going way down the phylogenetic chain, some of them as far back as, as crustaceans, so that's 350 million years. That would be the systems that keep track of dominance relationships, the serotonergic systems, which are extraordinarily ancient. And so P Piaget didn't understand, I don't think, that the child who's constructing his or her world is constructing it within axiomatic games whose rules are already set to some degree. Mm. And one of those would be hunger, for example, inbuilt value structures like hunger or thirst or temperature discomfort or mm. pain. Those things are there to begin with. Those aren't constructed. Now, those loose, you could call those them loose, low resolution categories like things to potentially eat I mean, the child, when the child is putting things in its mouth, which it does, or, or mouthing things before it can even put things in its mm. mouth, it's basically using an inbuilt schema to categorize the world. Things you can put in your mouth and things you can't. You can think about that as the lowest resolution representation of the world, you know. So, and then once you get things you can put in your mouth, you can use your mouth and your tongue to start to differentiate those things into subcategories. Okay. Now, okay, so that's the first thing. So... Piaget's theory suffers from a lack of grounding in these, in the, in a lack of, of, of consideration of these underlying deep biological structures that act as a priori um, uh, categorizers of the world. And the world is categorized in terms of the thing and its implication for action. Because hmm. that's the basic category structure. It's not, it's not objective reality. There sure. isn't an objective reality for human beings. What there is is a pragmatic reality. And the pragmatic reality is the functional utility of category structures. And it's, it's pragmatic because we want to use our category structures to aid our survival and aid our reproduction. If, mm. if you want to think about it from a Darwinian perspective, it's value laden right from the beginning. Okay, so there's that. And then so, the, so that's a nice modification of Piaget, and it's necessary because otherwise it just becomes arbitrary construction. Mm. But Piaget was also smart enough to know that the constructivism, the, the construction project wasn't arbitrary. And the reason for that was that it was social. And so, for example, while you, two, you and I are having this conversation, 
we're mutually constructing the category systems that we're using to structure the the conversation because otherwise we wouldn't be able to understand each other. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just arbitrarily construct the world. You have, insofar as you're living with other entities, you have to engage in a joint construction strategy because otherwise you're you're autistic. Sure. Mm -hmm. Philosophic. And the 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 if you if you take the fact of the necessity of joint construction, then that imposes certain limitations on the category structures that are going to be imposed. And so that's partly a solution to the postmodern dilemma. Mm. It's like, okay, so I read Dostoevsky. Well, how do I interpret it? Well, there's an infinite number of ways to interpret it. Okay, what if I want to interpret it and communicate with other people in a meaningful manner? Aha! Well, then all of a sudden, all sorts of limitations on the interpretation start to emerge. Mm. So I have to interpret it in a language we both share to begin with. Mm. And then I have to interpret it in ways that you're going to find relevant. So I'm not going to talk about the thickness of the pages, even though I could. You're going to look at me like there's something wrong with me because I've stepped outside of our implicitly shared axiomatic framework. Mm. And I'm off on some tangent that no sane human being would regard as relevant. Mm. The, the postmodernists don't understand that these shared networks of relevance are deeply biologically grounded and socially instantiated, even though they should understand that, and that that puts, a very, that puts unbelievably strict constraints on the interpretive framework. Mm. Now, Piaget said one more thing, which was absolutely brilliant, and this is part of the reason I admire his work so much, is that you can, you can consider the construction of one of these shared frames of reference as a game. Now, the game ha and games have certain rules. And one of them is that, for example, that we both have to want to play it. And the fact that we both have to want to play it means that the the net or the the, the space of all possible games is radically limited. Mm. You're going to play want to play a game that has utility for you. And I'm going to play want to play a game that has utility for me. And the intersection of those two desires is where we can play a joint game. Mm. And the space of all joint games is actually quite highly regulated. Yeah. As you can tell, even by playing with a child, like that there's, there's instant rules that emerge when playing a game. And one of them is reciprocity. The other is something like an equal chance to win. Mm. Another is that the one who's more skilled gets to win. And without having those expectations built into the game, then people will reject the game. Mm. And that's part of how Piaget started to conceptualize the emerg emergence of a genuine morality. Okay. Mm. Because a genuinely moral system consists of a set of hierarchically arranged games that everyone is playing voluntarily. And then he, he went one stage further, which was absolutely brilliant. He said, a set of playable games of that sort will beat another set of games that's imposed by force. Because the set okay. of games that's imposed by force requires extra energy to enforce. Mm. So it's less efficient. It's like, God, it's brilliant, you know, because it, it gives you a way of conceptualizing the organization of moral systems as they emerge in a in a socially interactive space and describes the constraints on the emergence of those systems. Mm. And, and you can see that echoed in animal behavior, um, in, in the construction of animal dominance hierarchies, especially in complex animals like wolves or chimpanzees. 
there's a finite space within which the chimpanzees can organize playable games. And so Franz de Waal, for example, has documented quite nicely, and so have other primatologists now, that brute force on the part of the most dominant chimpanzee mm. is an unstable dominance hierarchy game. Okay. Mm. The brute force chimp gets torn apart by his subordinates. Very much like, you know, tyrants tend to die, tyrants tend to die a painful death. It's it's non-stable game across across large scale spans of time. Mm. It reminds me a little bit that there are um, quite a few post post modern theories and philosophies and and what they have in common, like uh, performatism and, and metamodernism and digimodernism and all that forms, is that they are solving that problem of postmodernity what you just laid out. So everything is being relative and you have you don't have a, a frame of reference, but uh, the, the the post postmodern philosophies say argue well you can you can create some new meaning although you know you can't find any truth you can create some truth together in a way and this is like a similar argument Would right you... well they're right well okay so that's 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 part of the issue mm. but but there's a there's a there's a it's lacking the biology that that perspective because the the other thing is is that the truth that you the truth that you construct jointly mm. have to they're they're practical truths roughly speaking mm. they have to be have to be able to act them out in the world in a manner that produces what they intend and and that intention is going to be grounded in desire mm. and so it isn't merely the idea that you and i have to agree on what the say say you and i come up with a plan Okay, so so we've we've sh we've constructed the plan jointly, but now we have to go implement it in the world. Mm. Now, any category scheme is a plan. That's the thing. Any category scheme is a plan. It's not a description of the objective entities in the world. That's a mistake, and mm. it, it's a bad mistake because it actually rests, for example, it rests on a misapprehension of human perception from a scientific perspective, but also from a practical perspective. Okay, so you and I conjure up a plan and that's a way of viewing the world and it's a value structure at the same time because if it's a plan it's oriented towards an aim and we're always going to be oriented towards an aim because otherwise we're not going to be interested in the plan and the reason for that from a neuroscience perspective is that interest only manifests itself in relationship to a goal roughly sure. speaking if it's sure. if it's interest that you're going to act upon because mm. The system that mediates interest is the dopaminergic system, and it's grounded in the hypothalamus, and mm. it's an exploratory circuit. And so it kicks in when you specify a goal, and then it's the system that produces the positive emotion necessary to move towards the goal. And it's monitoring the environment to ensure that the category system that you're using to orient yourself towards the goal is functioning properly to move you towards that goal. Sure. So then we, we we take the shared truth that we generated and we act it out in the world. And if the action in the world invalidates the theory, then we have to return to the drawing board. Mm. So now, so it doesn't have to be correct, the theory, because it isn't going to be. It's never going to be 100% correct. It just has to be good enough to get you to where you're going. Sure. Mm. And, and so, so for example, if you have a map of the world, which is what your category scheme is, it's it's not a, a representation of the objective world. It's not finely differentiated enough to be that. If it was, the map would be the same size as the territory. 
and then it would be unwieldy because the map wouldn't provide a functional simplification of the territory. Mm -hmm. So you might say, well, is the map that you have of the territory correct or is it interpretation? And the answer is, well, it's interpretation because you're leaving all sorts of things out. But it's correct insofar as if you use the map, you get to where you're going. Sure. That's, what the, see, that's what the North American pragmatists realized at the end of the 19th century. They were brilliant. And that they knew that Darwinian theory was partly the key to the problem that the postmodernists were trying to solve. Mm. Is that category schemes are, are subordinate to goal-directed action. Mm. And so they're constrained... My category schemes are constrained by the necessity of formulating them in a shared social space with you. But then, for example, one of the things that we will figure out post hoc, both you and I, is whether the category scheme that we applied to this conversation not only served the function of our conversation, mm. but when released into the world, finds an audience. And sure. if it doesn't find an audience or people find it incomprehensible, then that's evidence that the category scheme that we used to structure our conversation was insufficient. Sure. Mm. And, and there's no escaping from that because you can't step outside motivated frames. You, you can to some degree if you apply scientific methodology because you're kind of averaging across motivated frames then. But even then, you know, scientists don't spend time looking for generally speaking, looking for useless facts. They're generally motivated. Sure. Mm. So, so science allows you to, out, to jump outside of it to some degree. Mm. But, but, and this is something that I've been arguing about, say, with Sam Harris, who's one of the, one of the people who've made atheism a, you know, a kind of, what, intellectually hot topic again mm. in, in America. Um, even scientific truth is bounded by Darwinian co considerations in some complex manner. I mean, Sam argues for the existence of objective facts, and and I this, buy that. This was, but this was an interesting conversation. Your point basically was you can't derive an art form an is, and he said, well, you can. This was amazing. Well, the uh, reason you can't is because there's too many ises. Mm, exactly. But That's his, the problem. His argument was that you can. No? Yeah, and but he never says mm, how. That's mm, the problem. This mm, is something we never got to in the conversation because mm, Sam says, for example, well, we should work to... Um, to increase the well-being of human beings. Mm. It's like, okay, Sam, no problem. I agree. Try measuring it. See how far you get. Because mm. I know the measurement literature on well-being, and it's appalling. It's unbelievably oversimplified. Mm. It basically boils down to extroversion minus neuroticism, which is to say that happy people who aren't sad are happy. Mm. It's like, yeah, no kidding. But like, that's not useful. And so the well-being problem becomes unbelievably difficult technically because here, here's the set of problems. Okay, good for you. All right, good for you when? Today, like this minute, this hour, mm. today, this week, this month, those are not the same issues because cocaine is really good for you right now. But it's probably not good for you over a five-year period. And, and, you know, the thing about impulsive pleasure is that impulsive pleasures put before you the problem of time frame. Mm. Okay, so Piaget would say something like that. If it's good, it has to be good across the set of time frames. So it has to be good for you now in a way that's good for you in an hour, in a way that's good for you for a day, etc., up to the limit of conceivable time frames. Mm. So that puts stringent, stringent restrictions on what constitutes good. And then we might also say, well, it has to be good for you now in a way that's good for you tomorrow and in a week and in a month, but that's also good for your family 
in a way that's good for the community, in a way that's good for the polity, and, mm. and then out from that. And so then what you get is a stacking of ethical requirements. And once you stack up those ethical requirements, the number of games that you can play to meet those ethical requirements becomes extraordinarily limited. Mm. And it's my contention that it's the solutions to that set of stacked ethical games that's expressed in religious mythology that's evolved across millennia, millennia. Mm -hmm. So one example would be for, and this is something the ancient Mesopotamians figured out when they were trying to figure out who should be, which deity should rule. Imagine that a bunch of tribes come together and they all have gods, mm -hmm. and the gods are representations of their moral structure. They're more than that, but we'll call them that for now. Then the question becomes, whose God will rule, but even more um, practically, which God should rule? Hmm. And so see this, this idea emerge in Mesopotamian mythology, which actually describes the battle of the gods for supremacy and the emergence of the, of the metagod. Hmm. And their metagod, the name of their metagod was Marduk. And Marduk had eyes all the way around his head. So the Mesopotamians realized that visual attention was one of the highest virtues. And he could speak magic words. And so the Mesopotamians realized that the capacity for voluntary speech associated with the ability to pay attention was, mm. was in the realm of the highest virtues. And then Marduk was also the, the god who would go out and fight the dragon of chaos. That was Tiamat, mm. who, was one of the, who was one of the ancient gods who was one of the two primal forces that created the world. Mm. She's actually the goddess of of chaos. Mm. Her husband, Apsu, was the god of order. So there's order in chaos that produce everything. Mm. And then chaos sometimes reemerges to pull everything back down. Mm. Okay, so Marduk goes out to confront chaos voluntarily. And he cuts Tiamat into pieces and makes the world. And that's a constructivist idea. So the idea is that the highest god should be the capacity to pay attention, the ability to speak voluntarily, and the willingness to confront chaos and generate order. Mm. Well, that idea is implicitly, um, that idea becomes implicit in Genesis, because mm. the opening lines of Genesis, where Yahweh creates the world, he creates it out of something called tohu, wabohu, or teom, and that's derived from the word tiamat. And so oh, okay. there's the idea in the Old Testament that it's the word of God that extracts order from chaos. Mm. And that's the highest deity. Do you think we're facing now like a chaotic time? I mean, when, when you look at the world, you have like a crazy person in the White House. You have nationalistic populist movements everywhere, basically. You have no great narratives how to describe our social reality. So, and everything, everybody tries to figure out what is going on. So do you think this is like the beginning of the end of postmodernism, the, the chaos reigns and and okay well yeah i think that's i think that's exactly right i mean you see this in this strange idea that's become current in in among the among people obsessed with in, the internet that that the current god is kek k-e-k -E mm. egyptian god of chaos who is a frog and oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. frog the frog is something that doesn't fit into categories right because it, it transmutes as it grows because mm. it starts as a tadpole but it's half in the water and half on the land mm. and so yeah we're in a we're in a time of extreme chaos and we're trying to sort out whether we're going to degenerate further into chaos mm. whether we're going to uh, 
what would you call it, devolve into a state of strict order. Mm. That's that's the call from the right, I would say. Mm. Or, in my estimation, whether or not we're going to follow the pathway of logos, which is the which is the the pathway that's laid forward um, in the ideas that I just described. Is that mm. Individuals have to confront the chaos with their own character mm. and parse it back into habitable order. Mm. But that that's a matter of individual characterological development, in my estimation, and that's the alternative to the radical left-wing postmodernist chaos and the call to a return to, you know, restrictive nationalistic identities that's characteristic of the call from the right. Mm. But yes, isn't that, very dangerous time. Yes, isn't, I, I mean, the, the, the danger which may lie ahead may be tremendous. You know, it's like a time where a whole worldview collapses in a way and all the good things that, that uh, um, um, possibility started with You know, I mentioned this, this um, are now tumbling down, and, and you said this in your book, okay, the culture is always describable with these two archetypes, the good king and, and the, the, the bad tyrant. And now when, when I see postmodernism, it's like, okay, feminism is eating its children now. and, and all, Yeah, all well, Tiamat has come back. Tiamat's a female god, hmm. right, in the Mesopotamian creation myth, and she decides to eat her children. That's hmm. what happens. She's tired of all the noise they're making. So it's like it's like a feminist critique of the patriarchy fundamentally. That's mm. what's acted out in the Enuma Elish. Mm. But the problem is, is that chaos is just as destructive a force as order. Mm. It, and and the balance has to be struck between them. And I believe that, well, that the classic story when chaos reigns is that the hero goes to the underworld to rescue his father. Mm. And what that means is that you go back into your culture and you find the values that have been lying dormant and you revivify them. And the, the value that's lying dormant in our culture is logos, essentially. Mm. Because that logos, the idea that logos was the ultimate deity was criticized out of existence by the scientific revolution, roughly mm. speaking. Because the scientists confused, and so did the religious people, the scientists and the religious people confuse the idea of logos with a scientific description of a set of facts. Mm. And it's not. Well, look, one of the things that Piaget said was that when you look at the history of facts, you find that facts dissolve and change as time transforms. Now, now it's kind of a view that Thomas Kuhn shared. Mm. Now, that's not exactly true because some facts are more robust across time than others. Mm. Like the, the idea that things are made of protons is a pretty damn robust fact. And it's true across almost all possible frames of reference. So Piaget was wrong and so was Kuhn, I think, because they failed to take into account that some sets of propositions are more robust to transformation than others. Mm. But be that as it may, there is still the case that sets of facts tend to transform. Mm. And so that it's difficult to say what fact is permanent. But Piaget performed a sleight of hand in respect to that, and he said, okay, the facts themselves might not be able to regard, be regarded as permanent, but the process by which we derive the facts is permanent. Okay, that's, and, okay. and he thought of that as this exploratory tendency that, that, that underlied the constructivist act. There's something in you that's constructing. Mm. Okay, well, that thing that's in you is a permanent fact. That's the logos. And the question is whether or not the fundamental question, and this is something Christianity has been putting forward as the cardinal question for thousands and thousands of years in imagistic and implicit form. 
are you going to identify with the logos? That's the key to salvation. Mm. And the logos is the thing that uses communication to balance order and chaos. Okay. So, for example, in the in the classic dragon slayer type logos myths, the hero is the person who goes out beyond the confines of the community, comes into conf- contact with the dangerous unknown, often given predatory form, because we, that's the circuit we use to conceptualize mm. the unknown. And, and receive something of great value, which is then distributed to the community. Okay, that's, that's the oldest, that's one of the oldest stories of mankind. You, mm. can, you can think about that as the central story of mankind. It's the, it's the expression in narrative of our, of our evolved being. And then there's, a, there's an adjunct to that story, which is, well, sometimes the hero goes out and confronts chaos and generates order. Mm. But sometimes the hero goes out and confronts a too rigid order, demolishes it and recasts it. And mm. so like the, the, the Mesopotamian hero, for example, that's uh, Marduk, is basically uh, a St. George dragon slayer type. Mm. But Christ is more of a social reformer. Okay. Mm. Even though Yahweh in the Old Testament is more like Marduk, he's a he's a he's the force, the logos force that creates order out of chaos using the divine word. But when Christ emerges on the mythological scene, let's say, hmm. he opposes the tyrannical state hmm. and poses the notion that it's adherence to truth and to and to spoken it's adherence to spoken truth and orient, orientation towards the highest good that's actually superordinate to the state. And okay. that makes the state subordinate to the individual, mm. to the logos element of the individual. And that's the fundamental proposition upon which Western culture base, rests. Um, if you confront radical leftists and you want to confront the, the, the problems of postmodernity and, and all we, we have spoken about, so how, what, what is your solution to, to be that hero, to, to enact that logos and speak the truth? Or? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Well, and I could say to the postmodernists um, and the identity politics people too, you can say you can you can just take their argument, and push it to its logical conclusion. It's like you fractionate group identities until you come down to the level of the individual. See, the problem with the group identity idea is that the group identity, so that's identity politics, is mm. predicated on the idea that a group of people is a homogenous unit. But that's incorrect because you can take your homogenous unit, let's say mm. black people. Okay, black people, a homogenous unit. Well, it's a racist proposition to begin with that that constitutes a homogenous unit. It's actually, it's actually the key element in racism is to treat a, a group of individuals as if they're isomorphic using a single category structure. Mm. It's the definition of racism. But anyways, forget about that for a moment. Okay, black people. All right, fine. Well, what about women and men? Okay, black women and men. Okay, well, what about middle class versus lower class? Okay, lower class black <sighs> women and lower class black men and upper class black women and upper class black men. It's like, well, okay, what about people with health problems? Okay, well, how many health problems? Okay, well, let's say there's 40 serious health problems. Okay, so now we fractionated that. Okay, what about attractiveness? Okay, what about age? What about physical prowess? What mm. about intelligence? What about temperament? It's like, yeah, those are all relevant. Okay, where do we stop? That's easy. We stop at the level of the individual. Because hmm. you can't fractionate past that. And so if I'm going to take your identity seriously, I take all of the differentiation that characterizes you and treat that all as relevant. 
Okay, mm. how do I do that? I meet you as an individual. We meet logos to logos. Mm. Right, right. And so, and mm. so I don't see any way out of that from a logical perspective, unless you're willing to say, no, there are certain categories that are canonical. Well, what are those? Race. Okay, you want to say race is canonical, do you? Well, welcome to the world of white suprematism. Because mm -hmm. that's an inevitable consequence of that perspective. Sure. And you can mm -hmm. see that playing itself out right now. If there are black people, there are white people. Sure. Mm -hmm. And first of all, you know, people aren't black and white. They're actually brown and tan. <laughs> really? I mean, you think about that. It's, you think about that. That's, I know that's, that, that seems... Seems yeah, only yeah yeah Jung uh, wrote kind of uh, a good deal about that no yeah, yeah. about I mean, about the representation of the uses of the word black and what yeah black absolutely I mean I mean obviously it's a it's an insane oversimplification mm -hmm. and so it's not like there isn't utility from time to time in considering people's ethnic origins sometimes you have to do that even if you're looking at the effects of drugs on biological systems. So there's places, you know, there are situations where one categorical scheme is more appropriate than the other. Mm. But to, to, to privilege, to use the postmodernist phrase, to privilege race above all other distinctions is to fall prey to the precise error that the postmodernists were complaining about. Okay, mm. privilege race, what does that mean? Oh, you're not privileging a bunch of other things. Well, what if they're relevant? It's like, yeah, what if they are? Because mm. they are. So, so it's a crazy game. And, and and part of the reason that the, the radicals are playing it is because it enables them to divide the world up into people they can hate and blame. And that means that they don't have to take responsibility for their own lives. They don't mm. ever view themselves as, okay, you're a perpetrator. It's like, okay, that means I'm not. Well, that's a problem because I'm a perpetrator too. All these Western postmodernists who are complaining about the unfair division of resources, they're already in the top 1%. Mm. Right, because they live in North America, they live in Europe. Sure. Mm. So then they say, well, what about the one percent that's above me? It's like, yeah, well, why don't you clean up your own house first? <laughs> that's true. One, one, one last question I, I, I had: um, the maps of meaning videos were they already that popular before you started the uh, political, uh, the professor against political correctness, or just no, Skype? no? There's been. No, there's been an, an absolute skyrocketing of, of, of their popularity since, why, why since I released these. Well, I think what happens is that people, people, it, look, I've, be, I've been accused of over-exaggerating the importance of the pronoun issue. Mm. Okay, well, fundamentally, the pronoun issue is a tiny sideshow in a very massive game. I think the reason that it attracted attention when I opposed it was because I actually said there was something I wasn't going to do no matter what. I wasn't going to use this language that the postmodernists created. And so I took something universal and large and made it concrete and specific. Mm. And that made it real. Mm. And it made it dramatic. I mean, I didn't intend that. What I intended was to clarify my thoughts on the matter, but also to state that there was no way I was going to use that language. Just and, and to, to make it public, partly to clarify my own thinking, but also to indicate that there was some um, opposition to this idea, mm. that I thought it was reprehensible. Well, obviously that struck a nerve, because I don't know, maybe 20 million people have watched on YouTube the, the 
the some derivation of the consequences of that, perhaps mm. more. Well, mm. All right. And so then people have come to my website to figure out what what who that you know what's going on. Mm. And then they watch something else that I'm doing and they think, oh, I see, there's more to the story than meets the eye, which mm. is of course the case, and everyone knows it because if it was just a matter of preferred pronouns, this would have been a 15-minute flurry of activity. And yeah, yeah, I think so, because the, the, the philosopher Cicek, he, he uh, posted a similar five-minute video about the uh, totalitarian character of political correctness, and it doesn't create that a stir, you know, so... Yeah, yeah well, I thought for a long time about why, why, it, why it caused such a stir, and I, I do believe that, you see... I made an archetypal statement, but an archetypal statement has no meaning unless it's confined to a particular time and space. Hmm. See, I'll, I can give you an example of that. This is a very strange example, but see, there's an archetypal reason why Christ was a carpenter in the Middle East. Okay. And the archetypal reason is because the Logos is a transcendent reality. But it's so abstract that unless you embody it, it, has, it doesn't have sufficient meaning. Because it's not localized, and, okay. and you could say that you could say that on the grandest of all possible scales, the logos is meaningless without embodiment, hmm. right? And so that's a that's a key to the secret of being itself. So each of us is an embodiment of the logos, and that's what makes it real. It's hmm. the logos is is something of infinite power, but it has no reality until it's limited. Strangely enough, it's like a genie. Okay, you know, a genie a genie has to live inside that little lamp. Hmm. Genie is the same word as genius. Sure. And that's, that's another manifestation of the idea of the logos. Well, I took a universal problem, which is, let's say, the, this, this postmodern chaos, that's one way of thinking about it, and I made it concrete. I said, here is something I will not do. And that turned the political philosophical issue into a human drama. Exactly. And this is this is what I what I was thinking, and, and it's kind of a personal question. You don't have to answer it, but when I was thinking about this, it seems to me that the attraction stems from the fact that that, there are, that this is like a, a representation of an eternal fight. You know, the, the the hero against that bad tyrant, and that everybody recognizes that fight because it's like so deep grounded, and that you in a way embody that. Archetype? Would, would you... Well, without that, without you can be sure that when something receives wide attention, that mm. there's an archetypal story at the bottom of it. Because otherwise, uh, it's archetypal. Archetypal stories are always the stories that receive wide attention mm. by their nature. I mean, you, you can see that. You, go, go ahead. Did you choose that knowingly, or, or was it something that happened? It's hard to know what you know and what you don't know. <laughs> okay. You know, big well, and I'm, I'm not. I. I, I it, so I can tell you what the phenomenology was. Mm. Sure. Like I could feel, and I have felt for several years, this bubbling up of 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 intense opposition to what's been happening in the political landscape. So, for for example, I just finished a book, and in one of the chap one of the chapters deals with um, the chapter is called "Don't Bother Children When They're Skateboarding." Okay. And it's actually a discussion of of. I would say, to some degree, the repression of exploratory masculinity. Um, and so I was thinking hard about that for several months. And so that, and but that's also an extension of things that I've been thinking about for decades. And so that, that I've been working on this underlying set of ideas intensely for, for 30 years, for, for longer than 30 years. And so 
part of the reason that I was feeling so intensely opposed to what was happening politically was because of what I had done philosophically. Now, the way that manifested itself was as an inarticulate frustration. Okay. And so I decided to make these videos. I thought, well, this is really bugging me. I better say what I have to say so that I can figure out what I have to say. Mm. And I thought from a, from a, let's call it marketing perspective, you know, um, uh, that was more exploration. I, I have this, had this YouTube channel. By September, it had attracted about a million views. Mm. And that was nearly from what I had posted from my classes. Mm. And, you know, that was also bubbling around in the back of my mind because I thought, wow, that, you know, that's, if I sold a million books, I, I'd be <laughs> doing the, the same dance that football players do when they score a touchdown. You know, sure. it's like, that's a big deal. And now my lectures have been watched by a million or they have been watched a million times, perhaps mm. not by a million people. I thought, wow, that that YouTube, that's a whole new phenomena. That's mm. a good revolution because now the spoken word has as much reach as the written word. Mm. Never happened before in human history. Mm. So that was bubbling around in the back of my mind too. And so I thought all these things came together in this sense of frustration. And I thought, well, I'll make these videos. I've got something to say. Mm. I'll throw them on YouTube and see what happens. Mm. Well, and so then you say, well, did I know what I was doing? Well, I would say 70% yes and 30% no. Okay. Mm. And then, you know, I launched a product or maybe I put a note in a bottle and I launched it out on, onto an ocean and mm. I thought, well, see what happens. And of course, my, my supposition was very little will happen. You mm. know, people will watch it. They'll agree with me or not agree with me. But at least I'll have said my piece and I'll know more about that actually has two meanings okay. to say mm. your piece, right? Mm. Um, and then I'll, and then that will move me to whatever will be next. Well, you know. Sure, and then everybody well, reacted to this. Yeah, it's 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 <laughs> it's, it's absolutely crazy. Mm. It's crazy what's happened, and mm. but that also indicates that something deeper has been stirred. That's mm. the. You know, and one of the things that's so interesting about this, that one of the things that I can really, it's really been difficult for me to wrap my head around. Um, and I've been, there's a, there's a political party Congress that's going to occur in Canada in a couple of months where the, the second major party in Canada, which is the Conservative Party, is going to elect a new leader. And I've been talking to a number of the people who are running for the leadership about observations that I've made. Okay. Um, so this is something that's really cool. So about 90% of the people who watch my YouTube videos are men. And that okay. was true even before the the political issue hit. It it tilted a little harder to men after the political issue hit. But even before, it was about 85% men. Oh, okay. And that's interesting because most psychology classes are radically female-dominated. Mm. So the fact that it was men between the ages of 18 and 40 that were watching, I was watching that and thinking, hmm, that's really interesting. I don't mm. know what's going on exactly. But... Then I've been talking to more and more groups of people, and most of the people who come out and see me are men. So I thought, mm, that's interesting. There's something going on there. Okay. And then I've been talking to them about responsibility, mm. not rights, right? The opposite of rights, responsibility. And what's really cool is that their eyes light up. Mm. You know, and you can see that if you're lecturing to an audience, when you make a point, people make a little, like it's a little flash of recognition, and mm. you can see it. It's like a surprise or it's a moment of insight. You can see it registering on people's faces. And the more I talk about responsibility to these groups of people, the more excited they get, the more focused they get. And so 
And so, and so, so one of the things that I've learned is that we've talked about rights and freedom for so long that there's uh, a counter. Okay. Mm -hmm. yes. yeah, mm -hmm. There's a counter requirement emerging, mm -hmm. and the counter requirement is going to look for two things. It's either going to look for order, mm -hmm. or it's going to look for responsibility. If it looks for order, then we're in trouble. Because hmm. that means the rise of the state. Hmm. But if it looks for responsibility, then that's great because responsibility produces flexible and benevolent order. Yes. And so I've been Thoreau, agitating. Thoreau writes a great deal about those things. I, I'm, I'm just reading something from him and slavery in Massachusetts and some, some essays of him. It's, it's exactly this, you know. Take responsibility and, and act from that logos. Yeah, well, the, the thing about responsibility is people, okay, so let's say the fundamental question in life is how to regulate suffering. Hmm. Suffering of others and your own suffering, because your own suffering can make you nihilistic, suicidal, resentful, genocidal, murderous, all those terrible things. Hmm. And, and you feel you have justification for it because of the suffering. Uh, of yourself and other people, because you can say, well, the suffering of the world is an index indication that the world should not exist. And that's a very powerful argument. It's actually the argument that Mephistopheles makes to Goethe, to uh, Faust in, in, sure. in mm -hmm. Goethe's Faust. It's like Satan is this Satan is the spirit that eternally says being is so corrupt, it should not exist. And that's a sure. very powerful argument. That's why he's the eternal adversary. So it's the question is, so, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and worse than nihilism, it's, it, it's, it's, nihilism is only the first step. The next step is the destruction of things, including okay. yourself. Mm -hmm. That's why the school shooters who are nihilistic go out and kill people and then shoot themselves. Mm -hmm. Like they've taken the nihilistic doctrine to its logical conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, well, so what's the, an, what's the antidote to suffering? Well, non-being is one antidote. But another antidote is the voluntary acceptance of suffering. That's sure. what it means. That's what the Christian symbol of, of raising the cross means. It's like, accept it. Accept it. See what happens if you accept it. And that's the same as accepting responsibility. It's Because accepting responsibility is the same as accepting responsibility for the alleviation of suffering. That's the same no argument. So, sorry, that's the same argument from Jung. He said, okay, uh, psychology is not there to make you happy, but to... Uh, be able to deal with stress and conflict and, 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 and suffering. So this is the thing. Right, it's to, mm. right. Well, psychological integration is there to prepare you for the dragon fight mm. or to the fight against the tyrant. And the tyrant can be, the dragon can be outside or inside. Mm. It's both. And mm. the tyrant is outside and inside. It's both. But mm. the purpose of psychological integration is to strengthen you for that battle, not mm. to eliminate the battle because there's no eliminating the battle. And so, and so paradoxically, the meaning in life that will help you overcome the suffering in life is to be found in adopting voluntary responsibility for the suffering that being entails. Sure. And that's, 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 that's the implicit message in Christianity. Mm. Right? It, 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 it's implicit because the story had to be formulated and acted out long before we could understand it mm. uh, explicitly. Right. But we need to understand it explicitly. That's partly what Jung was trying to do. He was trying to make the story explicit. What does the story mean? Mm. The story means you need to voluntarily adopt responsibility for the suffering of being. And in that, you'll find 
sufficient meaning in life so that that will justify life. And that's true. I, but, I believe but, that yes, but, to be but, true. But, but this is only um, possible on a specific stage of development that you can integrate that and that you can anticipate that dragon, you know, uh, in any place in your life, you know, and, and not to run away, but to, you know, to embrace that and to know that object which hinders you is the way to go. Yeah, so, and, and, well, and, it's very, you, well, you, it's very difficult to get to a point where you can formulate that abstractly. Hmm. And then use that abstract formulation as a guideline to your to your action, um, but people do that. Do, they do that performatively, right? I mean, admirable people do that performatively, and, what do you and mean? they're performatively. Well, they act it out. Okay. Mm -hmm. you know, and so you see, kids. There are kids who, there are kids who are admired by other kids, mm. and if and you ask the kids why they're admired. They don't can't really tell you. They say, "Well, he's cool," or you know, "I really like the way he acts." It's, like, mm. it's very low resolution representation. Okay. But those kids are usually courageous, and forthright, and and brave, and tough. And so there's a there's an affinity, there's an affinity for the next stage of development that underlies admiration, right? That's hero worship, roughly okay. speaking, and that that can occur mimetically which is of course one of piaget's ideas as well is that you act out things before you understand them and of course people do for for millions of years we had no language mm. obviously we're acting things out before we understood them mm. obviously just like animals do mm. so now we need to understand as well because now, how, we're past how you did it with the with the videos you 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 said that you acted that out to see what it's all about so it's quite interesting Well, that well, that you know, and we're all we're engaged in a process mm. of self-revelation. Mm. Obviously, there's far more to us than we can understand. Mm. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't need a psychology or a sociology or any of the human sciences. So mm. we're always trying to figure out what we're up to. Mm. So, so Dr. Peterson, what are your upcoming things? I I have heard that you will publish a book. Um, yes, I I have a book coming out in 2018 called 12 Rules for Life." An antidote to chaos. Okay, and it's it's actually uh, it's a elaboration of some maxims that I put forth on a website called Quora okay. in response to a kid who asked, uh, "What are the most valuable things that people should know?" Okay, I, I made a list of about 40, mm. and then I I thought I would write an essay on each of them, but that would have turned into not a book but a library. So mm. I honed it down to 12 and. That's in the process of being uh, being uh, edited and all of that. Now I, I'm done writing it, oh, except for maybe okay. yeah, except okay. for maybe a, a polish. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm going to Harvard in a week to talk there, and I'm going to Oxford in June, and and I'm going back on the Joe Rogan podcast in May. And oh, so, fantastic! This was the best podcast I have ever heard. This Joe oh, Rogan okay. podcast. Fantastic. Yeah, it was. We had a really good conversation. It mm. was. It was. It was good. So I'm looking forward to the second one. And mm. um, oh, this one went pretty well. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. Mm. Yeah, I think. It went, I think we got a long ways with it. So that's really cool. Sure. Sure. So, Dr. Peterson, thank you very much for taking the time. I know you are. You, you have a um, full schedule. So, I wish you all the best in in your archetypal fight and and in your endeavors. Yeah, well, thank you for helping me push it forward. You know, sure. it was a good conversation. And sure. so I think it'll be helpful to people and it was helpful to me because I got to clarify things a little bit more. Sure. So. Sure.